You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, thank you for coming to The Chris Spangle Show. We've got a great conversation with Leslie Corby. She's a private policy analyst. We're going to be talking about uh, data privacy, and you're just not going to want to miss it. Uh, It's talking a little bit about China and where our future could go if we don't start taking this more seriously. Um, First and foremost, we want to thank all of our patrons of Wall Plus. They're the ones who keep the entire We Are Libertarians network afloat. And you can support the show by visiting joinwallplus.com and learn about all the great benefits of subscribing. Thanks to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Edel, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. And we also want to talk about our new sponsor here on the show. This episode is brought to you by Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. You might feel overwhelmed, lost, or frustrated, and if that's you, feel in control with our friend Matt Allen. Visit Iconic Insurance, iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians to get started. Well, I ran across this great article uh, about privacy in the International Policy Digest, which I know, who doesn't get the International Policy Digest? But I'm, I'm a weirdo like you. And they have an author, Leslie Corby, who wrote, Lack of Privacy Leads to Political Abuses. And Leslie joins me here on the show today. She is a private policy analyst with the Libertas Institute in Utah, and she covers current events and affairs related to privacy from the perspective of preserving individual rights and essential liberties. She's also Young Voices contributor. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us how you got involved in this work and why this is a particular interest of yours. Sure. So I got involved in this work by uh, joining Libertas Institute staff and really at the time was very interested in tackling these issues of privacy because of where things are headed. As we can see, technology is becoming increasingly invasive. um, And unfortunately, as the state has gained a lot more power, a lot more centralized power, you have a situation where the infrastructure for more widespread abuses of power is becoming more um, well-formed. And at the same time, uh, you have high polarization among the population and among those in power as well. It's not as if that political polarization is limited to the public, right? It's also limited to those who are in charge of government. So there's just a lot of concerns and a lot of uh, issues that have metastasized to where I, I am deeply concerned that privacy is sort of becoming a figment of the past. And I certainly don't want it to be a relic of the past. I believe a that privacy is a precondition for a free society. I don't think you can have true autonomy in a world where you have virtually zero control over your um, self and your image in the world. So that's what got me really interested in these issues. And again, it's just these these the trend is not going in the right direction, in my view, as far as uh, losing uh, our, our individual privacy rights. Yeah, I, I've been a libertarian for like 20 years. It's not gotten any better. I don't know how long you've been. I assume you're a libertarian or you libertarian leaning. Your bio says uh, that you want to preserve individual rights and essential liberties, of which privacy is one. Let's just get real foundational, go one-on-one for people who just, you know, what is, if you're not doing anything wrong, then what's the problem with hiring all these IRS agents, Leslie? Like, what's the problem? If you're not, that was always the argument in the 9-11 era and the war on terror era with the Patriot Act. You're not a terrorist. What does it matter? So explain yes, this. Uh, explain under- that. <laughs> it's, uh, the problem with that argument is it really ignores the psychological effect, say, of something like surveillance. So we don't behave the same when we're in a room of say a hundred people versus when you're in a room of 10 or when you're, let's say you're giving a speech, there's something different about that experience when you're being watched, right? When someone's paying attention to you, Uh, you don't behave the same. Um, And as far as you're not doing anything wrong, you won't get caught. That, that only goes so far. I mean, there are people who are, who are charged with crimes who are innocent. As we all know, that happens even if it's rare, uh, you certainly won't want to be in that position. 
And then there comes the problem of enforcement of increasingly ambiguous and vaguely worded laws. So that's where, for instance, things with, I mean, you've mentioned the IRS. That's a great example of you don't really want to go through an audit. And if at the end of the day, they don't try to slap you with penalties, that process is cumbersome. It is extremely stressful uh, and it takes a toll, right? Uh, so this idea that being investigated is neutral. Oh, well, you're just being investigated. We haven't charged you with anything. I think really overlooks the fact that investigations themselves take a toll on the people who are being who are under scrutiny, right? Uh, there's healthy scrutiny, of course, and then there's I would I would argue unhealthy scrutiny, right? Uh, that that you when you're when you're under the microscope as far as there could be an enforcement against you, right? Not that you're just being let's say asked tough questions or something about what you think. That's that's a form of scrutiny, right? In an interview, but. Forms of scrutiny when there's potential legal ramifications or something that could uh, impair your ability to to work or to live life uh, as you normally would uh, is is another level of scrutiny that I don't think the average individual who has not experienced that is aware of of what that really is like in real life. Uh, it's not it's not a neutral process where oh we just need to ask you a few questions and we may back off. Right. <laughs> right. If they're going to investigate <laughs> you and it costs them a lot of money, they're going to find something. Uh, and that is increasing across the board. Like there's one example of a, a a woman who her house burned down here in Indiana and uh, she put up a trailer on her lot and the neighbors didn't like it and turned her into the zone, zoning enforcement. They had an argument over her property. There's one in Noblesville right now where an adult baby store is currently being shut down because Noblesville went in and like tried to find out if they were selling porn i guess i don't know like there's just it starts at the local level where you can control your government all the way up to the irs and even overseas uh so privacy plays out in so many different ways across the different spectrums and there's a book called three felonies a day where i don't know if you've read this book but uh, can you talk about the danger of overcriminalization across the board and how that impacts? Uh, we talk a lot about it with BLM and how it impacts communities of color, but it it impacts a lot of people across the board. Just because you're not doing anything wrong, it doesn't mean that you're not committing a crime somewhere. And that's where I would argue that we're seeing much more disparate impact. So rather than an across the board, let's just take like 1950 as an example, where you were going to have laws significantly segregated as far as enforcement, right? Who Laws were being used to target specific groups of people almost exclusively based on race. Uh, I'm not saying that there are is no longer any racialization in enforcement anymore. That's not what I'm arguing at all. I'm more arguing that over time it's become, in my view, much more disparate where you have people with different biases or interests, you know, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. So if you go, let's say where you're in DC, obviously if you're in a DC jurisdiction, it could be made based much more on your political views, right? Uh, the kind of biases that are going to come into play in enforcement are going to look very different than say if you're in Greenville, South Carolina, or Norman, Oklahoma, or, you know, it's going to look very different based on where you are geographically. That being said, I think that's part of what has led to the high polarization, right, where people with these different grievances who may have witnessed or experienced or seen no people who have experienced um, some kind of enforcement that they believe was was more based on profiling or targeting of whatever specific group it is that they fear is being targeted, you, you have a lot of that kind of bumping into each other right now. And you're absolutely right that over-criminalization is a massive part of this problem. When you, when you make more laws and, and you criminalize more activity, you're creating an environment where more people are going to run and have altercations with law enforcement or with the legal system. And only, and of course, some of those will go fine and will go according to how you would want them to. And then some of them won't, right? And I think people, when they think of criminalization, they often think only of the, of like criminal laws, right? A kidnapping, a murder, a uh, something that's more, more in that realm of violent crime. Uh, but that's not always how crimes work as far as enforcement actions go. So when you look at administrative bodies, they also have enforcement wings, right? So that's where, for instance, the IRS comes into play. That's pretty much always in the civil context. But if you talk to anyone who's been through audits, um, even if they've done nothing wrong, it is extremely stressful and extremely, um, it takes a toll on you to go through that, right? It's not simple. It's not easy. Um, before I started 
this position I currently work in, I was a bankruptcy attorney where I walked debtors through the process of filing Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 bankruptcy cases. And I can tell you from experience, it's extremely stressful on their end to think about the potential ramifications of filing and having all of their financial records revealed, right? And none of my clients were engaging in fraud. <laughs> it's not widespread. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still extremely stressful to have have that area of your life just completely picked apart, right? So when you talk about overcriminalization, this occurs both in the civil and the criminal context, where you have the more laws, of course, the more enforcement there is, and you're going to have more um, people interfacing with the system and not always, uh, and seeing how it doesn't always play out according to how you would want it to, right? In this just neutral, fair manner. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting to see the job postings that have gotten pulled now. Ford Fisher posted them, and then they got pulled about training. And I have a local police officer friend who has been on these tax raids with the IRS, the armed IRS agents, which is why all these different bureaucracies are, are buying bullets, because they have now enforcement arms, which... The Presidential Records Act, the archivist, didn't have a mechanism, so they used the FBI on Trump, right? Um, but the IRS does have an, an enforcement mechanism. And mm-hmm. uh, my my cop buddy said they shouldn't be handling weapons. <laughs> um, but they, you know, these agencies at the federal level and even local police agencies are becoming increasingly more uh, uh, militarized, which is not good, right? So... Then there's also the element of society becoming more polarized. I I think China is somewhat of a good example, and maybe what we've learned from history is that when you have multiple agencies that can uh, be used against you and you have neighbors who are at odds, what's to stop you from calling animal control on your neighbor or calling them in for an audit at the tax... You know what I mean? Like... We, we'll start to turn on each other if, if China and other places are any kind of example. Yes, and that's where you start to see some of what's interesting is you start to see some of the interpersonal privacy problems uh, become connected with the, the political problems in a way. So one of the things I thought is very interesting to look at from the privacy context is how we with these online, the more our lives move from purely in person to online, I think there's a lot of potential costs and dangers associated with that. And uh, not only from the vantage point of you're less connected um, when you are engaging online, right? It's it's a layer of of disconnection from you and another person, but, but also because so much of our politics has been projected through that lens, right? You have a lot of people hearing and being exposed to opposing viewpoints instead of an actual well thought out reflected articulation of someone's views you often have it expressed on either twitter or facebook or some platform that encourages you to post a more of a hot take as opposed to a well thought out position so people then end up with in my view very um very limited understanding of the other viewpoints right so if you're coming we increasingly self silo and then our, and then your experience with the other side is very uh, superficial, right? Oh, I saw this person has this, what appears to be a more from what, from one person's vantage point, a crazy take or whatnot. They're reading it on, on Facebook, right? And Facebook doesn't really encourage you to post your most well thought out essays, right? These are usually um, not your best, like your shining moments, right? But then on the other hand, once you post it, there's that natural inclination that people have to defend it, right? So rather than backing off and saying, hmm, maybe I didn't articulate that very well in the moment, people tend to dig their heels in and it gets just just worse and worse along the way. And you have that not happening just in the general population, but among those who engage in governance, who cover the news, you know, journalists, professionals. I believe it was even the judge that signed off on the warrant um, or allegedly signed off on the warrant. I don't know that that's confirmed yet but allegedly it was um the judge the judge i forget his name but had allegedly been epstein the me- yeah the, the judge i believe, I, right? I think it's been confirmed and i think i saw a photo of him holding oreos next to Jislaine maxwell <laughs> like yeah like he he apparently <laughs> i i don't know it's yeah but the you, point being, well he but had you, some, you, he had had some 
amped up social media posts of anti yeah. right like you're seeing people who should in my view know better starting to engage in these um communication patterns that are really damaging as far as um cohesion social cohesion right and and you it doesn't just stay in the interpersonal realm right it's one thing if you think oh my neighbor has some kooky political views but as you can see this has moved way past that and you're also starting to have the mask pulled off of people who are in positions of power who are exposing themselves as potentially having a high degree of, of bias from whatever man or insanity point, right? uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. mentally i don't know what's and going I think on that's there. part of why you have cancel culture right because people are putting things out there that aren't well thought out that are very decontextualized right uh, and that that don't necessarily put their best foot forward right we all say silly things right that used to be boundaried much more so in a like personal context of say like a dinner party. If you're out, at, if you're hanging out at someone's house and you make an offhand comment, it's one thing. It's another thing when you hit send and it's now on Twitter. Yeah. So we've, you know, with these different environments, um, your article is a lot about decentralizing state power and why that's important, but it's sort of challenging when a lot of the conversation is on a very central location like social media. So how do you balance those two? First, I guess let's let's start with why decentralizing state power is important to privacy and then how you balance that with the central conversation online. Sure. So decentralizing power is really important to privacy because um, it's important to civil rights, right? So in general, it's much easier to have wide scale civil rights violations when you have centralized authority, right? I mean, I think any authoritarian regime is going to want a high degree of a centralized power because they want to control, <laughs> you know, enforcement mechanisms and how uh, the government and society operates. That's that's the whole point, right? Uh, and so in our federal system, our founders were very concerned with tyranny. They did not want it to become easy for government to amass power in any branch. That's why we have three branches of government. It's also why you have different powers uh, connect, connected, not just to different branches, but to different levels of government. So for instance, states retain generally police powers to enforce their criminal codes and so on and so forth. Local entities have powers distinct even from the states, right? So your towns and your cities have, have just their own distinct powers states generally don't wield. And then, of course, power even, states wield, but the federal government does. Even in counties, like the coroner here can arrest the sheriff. There's a lot of checks and balances in a federal system like we have, even within our own yeah. states. And that's a good thing. I think it's something we should attempt to preserve. I would argue the growth uh, of the administrative state has exceeded its constitutional authority. So the administrative state being this increasing, increasingly putting more power into the agencies themselves to make decisions that other that really should be made by Congress. So for instance, agencies engaging in um, in essentially what would be a legislative function, I would argue is is beyond the scope of what the executive branch should be engaging in. The the powers they have should be very narrowly focused in on what powers they were enabled to have by Congress. So enabling acts, for instance, is what grants an agency its ability to uh, engage in its functions. I would yeah. argue that there's been obviously a, a, a movement towards these these agencies amassing a lot of power, and that's not a good thing. And as you had mentioned, they now often have you know enforcement wings, uh, and, and so you're just seeing a lot more centralization of the, of power. And it's not it's not helpful from a privacy standpoint, both because of um, the ease with which with which government can access. Um, databases that are that are private right so think things like warrants that can go to could go to google geofence warrant center example where they draw a boundary around a crime scene and then say hey we want all user data and it is anonymized on the front end but unmasking does occur so what happens is they get anonymous data and they sift through it and then eventually unmask to, to find a suspect so that's an example of the ease with which they can obtain that information yeah, one from private actors. One one point um, about that. I mean, even within the Trump stuff, you see an independent DOJ and FBI didn't tell Biden, which I I buy because they're not supposed to. It's supposed to be an independent agency. Hold, you know, you can no matter how you feel about Trump. Like I think holding politicians accountable and investigating all of them equally is good. Um, you know, so you've got you've got all these different agencies that are supposed to check each other, even within the executive branch checking itself. Right. 
on on what you just said, that, I think that's interesting because there's so many buckets of data. And there's this perennial um, conversation about Apple, for instance, that law enforcement agencies always want to have the ability to unlock some drug kingpin's phone, right? And Apple says no. And there's been a couple moments over the years where, you know, a judge will say Apple has to do it, and then that says no, I imagine it'll end up in the Supreme Court. But, you know, Google, Facebook, all these tech companies are constantly, I mean, we don't need a chip implanted in our forehead or in our wrist, right? Like, it's already on us. We don't need a, a panopticon. Uh, we're already carrying the panopticon, and, and, you know, TikTok has all the data anyways. How does that play out typically, and what have you seen that kind of gives you some concern when it comes to how innocent people or even even people who are suspected of crimes and probably did it are treated and how does that data really uh, give us pause as civil libertarians? As civil libertarians, I think this is a, and I would identify as uh, as a libertarian, I agree with the non-aggression principle, which I think is the foundational um, tenet, so to speak, of libertarianism. Obviously, there's wide disputes on other other issues within the movement, but um, I do agree with the non, non-aggression principle, so I would, I would classify myself classify myself as a libertarian. I think this is a challenging issue for us for a couple of reasons. The first being that we're in a timeline, unfortunately, again, where a lot of a lot of constitutional protections have been eroded. A lot of constitutional norms over time have kind of been cast aside. The separation of powers, I think, is on that list. Uh, I was thrilled with the Chevron case to see the court scaling back the uh, power given to agencies. I have a, I have a working paper that I have on my website on this issue as well, where it tackles how the at the state level, um, state Supreme Courts have been clawing back ju- judicial deference. And that's the doctrine that that essentially says there that on appeal, there's a, a deference given to administrative decisions. Right. So if an administrative law judge makes a decision and that decision's appealed, you're, you, you're to defer. So there's a, a it kind of goes to the burden of proof of how difficult it would be to overturn or otherwise uh, change those decisions. So that's kind of what on that side those things look like. But as far as the ease with which government can obtain information from the private sector, this is where things get thorny because obviously libertarians are very wary of um, heavily regulating the marketplace. But we're also living in a timeline where the marketplace is not operating on free market principles, right? Uh, We have heavy, heavy regulations of many industries particularly those that have um, access to large databases, right? There's a lot of over-regulation going on, and I do have a concern with the extent to which these functions are merging, right? How collaborative is is it? How easy is it for businesses to create a business model, for instance, that is designed to collaborate with government? So here in Utah, there was a company called Banjo, and they, had, they were going to have a contract with law enforcement um, to essentially assist with what could could colloquially be described as predictive policing, right? They were going to amass all this data, have it in a dashboard so that law enforcement can uh, more easily fight crime. And it the contract was rescinded. It blew up because the owner of Banjo was uh, involved in, appeared to be involved in some kind of neo-Nazi situation. So obviously glad it was taken away. But I am concerned in the sense that it did not appear that what was happening itself was why it was blown up, Right absent this neo-Nazi situation, would this contract have gone forward? Because right, it's racism, it's not, yeah. Still, or, or, or what, yeah, that's terrible, obviously. Right, but, but that's, I'm concerned with the, <laughs> the situation itself isn't good, right? Well, that's been the frustration with all of this, right? Like, it's, like, Palantir Technologies, Peter Thiel's startup that was seed-funded by the CIA. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it was, you know, this massively creepy AI company with predictive technology and you know, uh, look into that listener if you haven't haven't heard of it. But yeah, I mean, there's so many private there. The government, the federal government specifically, has so much money to spend in in a government that just has an unregulated printing press that all of these private companies want that private public partnership because it, it just guarantees them a, a place at the trough. Well, it's also an incentive structure thing, right? Um, I mean, think about the the business model. You can, if you're a private actor, you think, hmm, if I corner the market, 
on a specific type of service and I have government contracts, you don't really have a competitor. What what incentive would the government have to move away from the one company they work with to yeah. learn a whole new system? Does that make sense? Like you don't, there, there's not really a lot of incentive for an entrant to come and try to disrupt that market because you kind of have it cornered. Uh, you see this, for instance, uh, with uh, with the education in the education sphere where everything is so centralized that uh, management, there aren't very many management software uh, options out there, right? Uh, and so you see big players like Panorama end up uh, kind of cornering some of these markets. It's, it's, so it's a concern that I think, I think at the lay level is hard to understand almost in a sense of you can feel very apathetic. And I think that's part of what, what, what needs to change is we need to start to value our privacy at the individual level and say, hmm, is there a company I can work with that doesn't have these invasive practices? Is there a company that maybe I, an alternative to working with, with, whether it's at the institutional level or company level um, where they, they practice data mining, right? And I understand that that could come with a premium cost, right? Uh, you're the product to some degree is why you'd have so much technology for free. But I think that, that, that we're seeing the cost of that, if that makes sense. Like it's yeah. not cost free when you really think about it, particularly not when you look at it at scale. For instance, we could solve half of our, or I would argue far more than half of our civil discourse issues by just logging off of Twitter and Facebook. If you just, <laughs> I totally agree if, with if, you. If everyone just, I mean, think about it. And I know that that's not realistic. I understand tomorrow you're not going to get millions of people just exiting Twitter. But my point is if you just left the platform, half of like, think of how much polarizing just incredibly corrosive discourse comes from engaging on these platforms that aren't really created for serious content. No, right? they're I created mean, for outrage. A, you're, you're hitting on a core yeah. concept of this show, which is Twitter is a bad neighborhood. Get <laughs> off of it. It's not real life. Please stop pretending that every, every you know, it's like one, <laughs> one elected libertarian just got, you know, a, an outrage avalanche at her because she said that the national LP shouldn't have said that. And they're like, oh, you only have 800 followers. What are you doing for liberty? She's like, I'm the mayor of a town, an elected libertarian party mayor. It was hilarious. But yeah, I mean, people have this concept that that social world is the real world. And a core concept of the Chris Spangle show is just that get out in your community and meet real people because it's just not realistic. But I, I don't know if you know anything about e uh, go ahead. Say, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say this is something I I feel passionately about because I felt like I wa I saw the writing on the wall. Um, I was majoring in and considering going into journalism instead of going to law school in about 2015, and I just made the decision to go to law school primarily because of the direction the industry was taking, where I was very concerned with why are I don't under I didn't understand why journalists were taking the bait on things like Twitter. Oh, it's easier to get out, you know? And I'm like, that's that's true in the short term, but you burn so much credibility because one of the core tenets of, of professional journalism and, and journalism ethics is to be accurate. And when you incentivize speed to the extent that they have, you, you inherently undercut that accuracy you can't go too fast right i mean it's just it's just a fact of your the way you're you humanly are right speed at a certain point has diminishing returns it's not that you want to go too slow there's obviously you can be too passive and too careful to a degree but it, it this looked like it was going to go off the rails to me uh and i think you have seen that a lot of yeah. journalists have just shredded their credibility and then you do have that like i mentioned earlier that tendency that human tendency to go you don't want to admit what you've done in a way, right? So you mm -hmm. tend to go and want to defend it and then it becomes just a spiral and you're going further down, right? Yeah. It's not helpful. And you can just see how that's happened, particularly after the Trump presidency, where uh, the news media's credibility is just completely in shreds. Um, and it was largely self-induced in my view. Uh, you did I, I not didn't... have to use Twitter the way you did. You didn't have, you know, there yeah. were so many things you didn't have to do and you chose to do them and they have consequences. So, yeah, no, there, there's a documentary called page one. And that's one of the struggles in there is them trying to deal with Glenn Thrush. I think it was and his constant tweets and hot takes, you know, you see it with Taylor Lawrence and right or wrong. Right. And, and some of the conversations around that, uh, I mean, I, I think, yeah, it gives guys like me a platform and an audience and has helped build what I've built. Um, so I think there are benefits. It's just, you know, what cost, right? Like we stopped using our platforms 
to push memes, even though we were getting in the millions in terms of engagement through 2020, it's just like you had to be ever increasingly like make people angry to get that. And you just have to at a certain point be be a smart consumer or, or producer and just sort of go, this isn't good for people. Uh, I think I don't know if you know anything about ESG scores, because this to me, I think, is one discussion of privacy that is going to be more and more relevant but esg scores are like these environmental standards and goals like and so it's pushed by a lot of big banks and saying and and like markets and you know you have to meet these certain you know it's sort of like a credit score on your environmental and social justice um involvement and you know it can be applied to your social media accounts now there are people if if you're involved in some uh, investments in places like at Vanguard, for instance, they have give you a personal ESG score based on scraping your social media. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how concerning do you think it is when we start to see private actors like the big banks say, this is how everybody needs to act? Because that is one of the problems and one of the real issues with big tech is like, you're a powerful thing. You're, no, a bank is way more powerful than Facebook. Like, and you know, Come on. Facebook has like 14 servers and it's it's nothing, but a bank has capital, right? So is there a discussion in the privacy world about a you know some of the, this particular issue but also what happens when we're all just kind of being pushed a certain way ideologically and there's nothing we can do about it. You got to participate in the credit score process and your FICO score whether you like it or not. Uh, that's an issue I haven't looked at as specifically. A lot of my work this year has been more in the Fourth Amendment geofence realm. That being said, um, I can give you some general principles that would concern me, right? So without having, I don't want to speak to with a high degree of specificity towards ESG itself, not having done the, the requisite uh, research. That being said, I think from a libertarian perspective, um, these things can give cause for concern in the sense that um, I think honest about the fact that again we aren't living a fair free market environment that you know libertarians and classical liberals uh sort of revere right uh we have high our economy is highly regulated across numerous industries Uh, an example of this for instance would be just to give you an example of how heavily regulated our lives really are um there are going to be new regulations coming for car manufacturers that require that are going to require some kind of a safety features, right, that passively monitor a driver's um, habits so that you can better ensure safety on the road, right? So this is all being tracked. It's like, again, this I want to say it's needing to be rolled out in 2025. New cars that hit market will have to have some kind of a system that passively monitors the driver's habits as they're driving so that um, it's, of course, build a safety. In my view, that's way beyond safety. You're an adult. You can drive a car. <laughs> You don't need your every single movement to be tracked. Of course, it's great for, you know, things that I'm sure they put this in there for. Insurance companies have more ammunition when they litigate. They can, uh, you can better tease out uh, uh, issues of, say, like causation, right? We, these are all for legal concerns. But the reality is it's not as though people in the marketplace are asking for some of these technological advances. So some of them are being pushed by regulation. Uh, and I think that the same likely, again, I I, I don't want to overstate my case here on ESG, but I think that we have to be aware that that's also in play in private sectors, right? The reason these things are occurring is often for um, it, 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 status quo entrenchment of, of power interests are already there, right? Uh, it's not as though consumers are rallying around saying we really want to to do this. This isn't really a grassroots effort is what I'm trying to get at, yeah, right? I mean, right. when you're being honest about what it is, it's not a grassroots effort. And I think... Uh, I could almost, uh, if you look back in time, I'm sure there were those who were opposed to this, to the credit score system, which arguably I think did take hands out of it. And this is what you're starting to see across numerous professions, by the way, is is a movement away from that more decentralized model, right? When you think of like the way bankers used to work with people in their community, it used to be much more community driven, right? Where you could go in and, and present a whatever it is. And there, there weren't quite as many like universal concentrated standards that you had to adhere to. Right. Uh, so that's another example of the centralization mindset where everything should be uniform and 
taking like judgment and decision making decision making power out of the hands of those who traditionally had it had that ability right and i think that uh to some degree i think you could argue that harmed a lot of people on the margins right people who may otherwise could have qualified for a loan and uh and done just fine didn't because of things like credit score issues um uh, for instance, I mean, when I when here's another example, when I got married, my husband only had a debit card and I had had a credit card for a few years. So everything had to go on my name because he didn't have a credit score. Right. So he had to get a credit card to build credit. Didn't matter that he had always been, you know, great at paying his bills. So there's some things that these like centralized systems don't account for and that they're really not designed to account for. Right. They're designed to be at scale to weed through uh, a lot of data really quickly and to make calculated decisions based on that that mitigates risk. Okay, I understand that. But um, particularly when you get to softer things, it's it's more difficult to assess. So for instance, when you're talking about a credit score, it's pretty easy or much easier to quantify monetary payments, right? Because you're dealing with, with actual monetary payments. So someone's right. payment history and their ability to fulfill their uh, obligations on loans is much easier to quantify in a way than your social concerns and your environmental score, right? You're talking about things that are much more harder to measure, even from a numerical standpoint. And so I think my initial blush at ESG is that it's designed um, for for those who already have power and to uh, potentially, it's it's very industry. Uh, I think it serves industry. I don't think it serves individuals. Do you have a heart out, by the way? Got time for a couple more? Questions. Oh, yeah, I have plenty of time. Okay. Go for it. All right. um, that kind of leads me to a, something that my friend Ryan Lindsay always says, which is capitalism. He's a commie. Capitalism always leads to China, right? So you start to see, uh, I, I don't know, liberal democratic capitalism <laughs> ends up at China. That's what he always says. Um, but, you know, I just had the weird experience of reading Glenn Beck's Great Reset book and then reading Davos Man. Which is by, you know, we don't have to explain Glenn Beck, but like the Davos man was written by this New York Times economics guy, and he's basically like a socialist, right? Um, but they, they diagnose the same exact issue, they just have different, like, we need a constitutional convention, and oh, we need, you know, to abolish the constitution and be more communist, right? Um, but their problem is with private equity, kind of all these different threads that we're talking about the fact that you have sort of this soft tyranny that creeps in from the public and private partnerships between big business and big government and the centralization, like, you know, 30 years ago here in Indianapolis, you had Hook's Drugstore and Hague Drugstore and CVS and Walgreens. Now you have CVS and maybe Walgreens will make it, right? <laughs> like, uh, And so it's just much easier for these centralized companies to start to all work together and everything's incentivized and you've got these big foundations, right? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so it is a little bit of what you're talking about where you've got all this centralization. I mean, in China, you don't have the federal system. Is there any, is there um, anything to that critique from these two sides that China is our future that makes you go, yeah, it could be, or, oh, that's just so way overblown, and Glenn Beck's just a crazy conspiracy theorist, and so is this Davos Man book. I think there are legitimate criticisms of um, some libertarian impulses to overly romanticize the capitalist system. And And what I mean by that is that there's no system of governing economics or whatnot that is going to be perfect. Uh, I think obviously capitalism is 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 your best bet <laughs> as far as producing uh, a a society that can flourish and has freedom and has freedom of choice, autonomy, and allows consumers options, right? But you're always going to have corruption that is going to occur, which is why when we talk about these decentralization, that's so important because when you look at a environment, which is increasingly where we are now, that is so incredibly heavily regulated, you can't have any disruption there, right? It's not a tr- it's not the system that capitalism actually advocates for, right? We, or, as classically conceived, right? You look at thinkers like Friedrich Hayek and, and some of those in the Austrian and Virginian schools of, and even Bloomington schools of political economy, they aren't, they're very skeptical of that centralization, right? They want this the decision-making to be at the individual level of analysis. And that's where I think, um, that's where I focus my attention is that how, 
to what extent are individuals' lives, are they able to even control their own lives, to control what they want, and to actualize their values in the marketplace? And that's where I think there does need to be both policy reforms and also a radical degree of self-ownership at the individual level of saying, I may not want to participate in something that even 90% of people participate in. Right. I mean, you look increasingly, I think you I think there's an appetite for that, too, particularly after COVID, you know, where a lot of people felt very coerced, for instance, into take, making medical decisions they may not otherwise have made. Um, and you, you you're seeing an erosion of an, your ability to make choices in the marketplace that are meaningful. I mean, if you live in Canada, frankly, and you aren't vaccinated, can you really participate in really in regular life? Right. That's pretty wild when you think about it. Like, think about this from a vantage point if it's 2012 and you're being told that in Canada, <laughs> um, that the kind of things are happening in Canada that are happening, I don't I don't think, I would have had a hard time believing it. Uh, and so I think that we need to have an, a healthy awareness that companies are always on your side. And that doesn't mean that you have to ask government to solve that problem directly. Oh, I don't like big whatever company it is, go regulate them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's more of an awareness at the individual level that you don't have to play ball with companies you don't want to play ball with. So for yeah. instance, if you... Look, I, I think people need to start looking at who they're doing business with and asking more critical uh, questions that are really good, right? Okay, not just what's your privacy policy, because you're going to read that and most lay people won't really know what that means, but start to really look at things that are, are much easier and zone in on the issue. Who collects the data? Does that make sense? Who yeah. stores the data? So for instance, data that's stored in the cloud versus data that's stored on your local server have different privacy implications. Um, obviously, it's easier to access data stored on a cloud. Uh, and these are open-ended questions, you know, of law, for instance, like a scope of a warrant. When you traditionally scope of warrant was was physically bound, right? You can't look in a, if you're looking for a stolen bike and you get a search warrant to search someone's house, you can't look in a drawer because you can't find a bike in a drawer, right? Uh, so it was kind of more bound in that way. With a phone, What's the scope of the warrant? Once you get in, you're kind of in, right? So there's these questions of law that are even open-ended that are that the legal community is working to tease out. And I think individuals need to be aware, not just that these questions are happening at the local level, but that to some degree, you know, we as libertarians argue that the marketplace can decide some of these things. This requires an engaged individual, right? An individual engaged in these issues saying, I'm actually going to look at what I can do at my um, individual level of analysis. And it's not everything, right? These things aren't going to happen overnight, but um, there's something to be said for that, that you can ask serious questions. Um, you know, the reason I deleted my Instagram last year is because I read the privacy policy and I said, I don't consent to that, right? And so when you start to think on this consent-based model, there are a lot of things, like you said, go engage in your community. There's certain things you don't need. You need banking. So when you mention access to banking, you you need a bank account. <laughs> you know, you frankly more or less need a credit card or some kind of non-cash transactions. So I'm not saying to necessarily go to that extreme. I, I can't control the banking system and neither can you. You can control your online activity to a high degree. Who do you want to work with? Why? Um, it, it's know, becoming, you know, and, and, you? and working in media, it's becoming increasingly less advantageous to be on on social media. Like five years ago, it was just if you weren't on social media, it was death. But in reality, Facebook really doesn't do much for your brand anymore. And and I've seen in the last mm -hmm. couple of years, it really start to kill itself. Um, it's not as powerful of a driver as a YouTube video is. Now, YouTube's very powerful. Um, but yeah, I think I think that the the more they try to do things that are that feel coercive the more there's a movement against it and other options like who would have ever thought that rumble would become an actual alternative to anything right but it has become somewhat of an alternative to youtube we're not on it we don't participate in it we're still on youtube but uh, you know at least god bless you guys are over there doing your thing right but um that i want to go back to the geofencing thing you know kind of wrap up with this because you mentioned that you've done a lot of studying on this I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that the audience does either. Fill us in. Tell us, nerd out on great. it, please. Great, great. Man, this is fantastic. I actually just released a brief on uh, the geofence issue in Utah. Uh, my team looked at like 40 geofence warrants in five different counties. That Which is what? Between 2016. 
So a geofence warrants is where, say there's a crime scene, any crime, and they build a boundary around it, right, based on the coordinate points. And then that boundary, after it's built, they can send this out to third-party uh, companies. Usually you're talking uh, T-Mobile, your like cell, cellular companies, or Google. Google's another huge um, receiver of these uh, warrants. So they send out the warrant asking for all user data in this area. So obviously a fishing expedition, they're attempting to find said suspect of crime by looking at, at that Everybody's location. Data? So initially- Everybody's data within yes. that location? <laughs> what? Yes, anyone that is pinged in there. So what happens is initially it is anonymous. So that's what they always say. Oh, this is it's just data points, which it is initially. Then there's usually a three-step pop process with Google where it would it eventually does lead to unmasking. So um, you're you're looking at, again, these concerns of everyone's data is coming in and the extent to which, particularly in my view, the extent to which you're unmasking individuals without additional information that ties it to that specific person for probable cause and the extent to which that individual is um, is actually made aware of, of these issues. Uh, you're not often given a lot of notice. Uh, it's not necessarily great to be under investigation and unaware. So you just have a lot of different concerns that come with the use, the widespread use of these warrants, which, by the way, is a fairly new um, investigative tool. I want to say it came about, I believe it was 2014 that the first first use of it came about. Right. So it's been spreading across the country since then um, and becoming a, a pretty common investigative tool. Again, I, I can't really quantify how common it is, given its novelty. It it's but, metastasizes um, these rat. Thinks yeah. they're dirty dogs. That's what they are. <laughs> it's, it's not great. And you have you have judges sometimes saying no, saying we don't. How many users are being implicated? You know, hmm. um, how accurate is the data coming in? Uh, you know, Google's um, algorithm, for instance, or their software, whatever the technical term would be for how they determine who's in that area, was designed for targeted advertising, which means it didn't need to be quite as accurate as. You know, if you're trying to place someone near a crime scene, you'd want it to be pretty darn accurate, right? Um, whereas Google's was not designed for that. You know, if there's an error rate with targeted advertising, it's not quite as dangerous, right? Because it's just, hey, here is a coffee shop you might like nearby or right. something. You know, something that was more it's designed for marketing It's not your life. <laughs> yeah. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It, not, is were, it... you, were you part of a murder? I don't right. know. You know, so it's... It, that's what that's basically what geofences are. Um, I have a brief that's just out, and there'll be a, a local TV interview coming up on that as well. So if your listeners are interested, you could go to the Libertas Institute and uh, pull that brief up and read read about five pages about geofence warrants. Does it seem so? Two thousand and eight, because we didn't put bankers and politicians in jail, led to all the stimulus. How much did privacy change after? Everybody just said nothing about the Patriot Act, nothing about what Snowden revealed. When you show passivity, it just keeps increasing. Like, has it? Is that part of it? Is just that when the big stuff came and we all said nothing, they just said, well, let's just keep going. I would certainly say apathy is the enemy of liberty. I think we need an engaged population. You know, our founders talked about this, that this is why they valued. Um, you know, education and and civic engagement so heavily, because if you don't have an informed and engaged population and and citizenry, it's very difficult to push back against some of these things. Passivity and apathy are not not our friends in these contexts, right? Uh, And I mean, you just think of how less engaged the public is than, gosh, I was reading the the, uh, academic Neil Postman, who's done a lot of work. He did a lot of work in the 80s and 90s on uh, sort of the impact of these increasingly entertainment-focused technologies on our civic engagement, essentially arguing there's entertainment value, but mediums that only have entertainment value may not be the best for um, civic engagement, right? You know, so he would—he was a heavy critiquer of, he heavily critiqued um, TV news, for instance, thinking that it trivialized politics and sort of analogizing it. He's saying, you know, you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates where citizens would come out in droves to listen to a two to three hour debate on serious public issues, whereas that then gets dumbed down in the 60s when you have the Kennedy-Nixon debates, where it becomes much more about appearance and image uh, and there's much less substance, right? Even a two minute 
you know, you look at the more modern debate format where someone's asked about a really serious issue and you're given a few minutes to respond. We're, right? we're down Which to, think, do you or do you not agree? Raise your hand like that. We were just the runs <laughs> if you're for or against Which I'm not. Yes. I'm not mad about Republicans pulling out of national debates or. Uh, yeah, I think Neil Postman's Is It Amusing Ourselves to Death? Is that the book? Yeah, he's written a whole line of books. So I've been looking into that more because I'll be doing an intense privacy. I'll be researching a pretty intense privacy project up in the fall at the American Institute for Economic Research. And so his very so on point right now. So Amusing Ourselves to Death is what got me down that rabbit hole with him. But he's written a lot on um, on technology, its impact on society. Particularly, he's looking at the, the communication effect, right? Uh, not really, I don't think he really saw a lot of danger in the pure entertainment value, which I would agree, right? I mean, if you're using certain platforms for just entertainment value, it, you know, people entertain themselves differently. But when you're talking about engaging in serious um, issues that really impact socio-political uh, conditions, you would want a more serious medium, which I do think podcasts are better for. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think yeah. you're seeing... You know, because they're much more long form. You can actually tease out issues as opposed to a five minute soundbite. You can't get a lot out in five minutes. It's just yeah. not. If if you want a book, uh, yeah. I mean, this is just a much better. We talked for fifty minutes, and it's you can have uh, a reasoned conversation amongst friends about how, 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 that's what we do here. So, yeah, there's a uh, David Hackett Fisher's or David Fisher Hackett. I can't remember the order of his name. He wrote a book about Paul Revere, and you just read the first chapter in that about Boston and the level of civic engagement and what the the network that they had. Just be, you know, I know everybody was kind of smaller, but it's it's a significant study in how the <laughs> how that all uh, all started. But all right, Leslie Leslie Corbley, excuse me, Corbley, shameless self promotion time. Where can we find out more about you and follow your work? Sure. So uh, my work is at, I'm on Twitter as at Corbly Leslie. So just last name, first name, uh, you can find me there. Um, I routinely, I have a website called, it's just lesliecorbly.com. I've titled it The Sovereign Self. I have a blog, all of my work I host on there. So that's very easy to find all of my media appearances. Um, anything I do goes on, on the website. That way it's very easy for people to sort of follow along. You're more than welcome to go and subscribe there. Um, so Twitter and my website are major avenues of where I push my work out, uh, for now. And, um, we'll see, uh, kind of what the future holds. We may, there may be more, more coming out as far as different avenues to stay engaged, but, uh, yeah, definitely. If you, if anyone wants to subscribe to the website for updates, feel free to do so. All right. Leslie Kohlerbley, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me, listener. If you learned something, then please share. That's the best way that you can help a podcast grow and just your word of mouth. That's really, really kind of you. Thank you to Leslie, and we will see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.